0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4. We'll begin this morning with the reading of the first 12 verses. Exodus chapter 4. Hear the Word of the living God. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose, they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he had taken it out, or when he took hold, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we pray that in the preaching of your word, from feeble lips to feeble ears, the glorious truths of your gospel, your glorious identity, and your glorious way may be known to our souls. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to do a glance at pastors and scholars and theologians, there are several chapters of Scripture to which many would say, almost with one accord, this is one of the more difficult passages in Scripture. Exodus 4 is one of those passages, not so much for what we've read thus far, but for Lord willing, what we'll see as the chapter unfolds. And yet I would submit to you that even though there may be some things that we might have difficulty with when we first see them, try to understand what they mean, it's a chapter where we see God doing some things. What is it that God does in this chapter Exodus chapter 4. I would submit to you that he at least does, as we can see this morning, four different things. And I want to walk you through those things. For there are characters like Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh is mentioned, Zipporah. There are characters. But it's really God who is the centerpiece of this chapter. What does it Tell us about who He is. So think on this question, boys and girls, as we walk through this passage this morning. What does God do in Exodus chapter 4? The first thing that I think that God does is He gives words to unbelief. He gives words to unbelief. We see that Exodus 4 really picks up where the previous chapter has left off. God shows up, as it were, in a bush that's burning but is not burned up. And he gives Moses a divine commission. I have a task for you, Moses. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be my instrument to lead my covenant people out of slavery. Of course, all of this really is an Old Testament picture of Christ and what he will do. That's the ultimate picture of the Bible. Jesus freeing people who are enslaved to sin. But Moses, at the beginning of this chapter, says, Lord, what are we going to do? What am I going to do if they don't believe me? You've given me words to tell them. I'm to go to Egypt and tell them, hey, this is what God is going to do. What if they don't believe? And the Lord God gives words to unbelief. Now, how does he do that? Well, notice what he does. He has to remind Moses He has to convince Moses that God is powerful enough over the hearts of men and women to believe. There are three symbolic signs. I don't know if you caught them, boys and girls, but a rod, a staff, like a walking stick, it turns into a serpent, and then God turns it back. Moses, secondly, takes his hand at God's command and puts it in his bosom, his robe. He pulls it out, and it's diseased, and then he... Puts it back in and it's whole again. Thirdly, God turns water, as it were, into blood. Let's look at these three signs. In verses 2 through 5, the rod is turned into a serpent. Now this rod, later in our chapter, in verse 20, will be called... rod of God. Notice there in verse 20, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. This sign that Moses is going to deliver to the Hebrews is a picture of God's authority. Now, I don't think we need to read too much into every single verse of scripture But can we think of any places in Scripture where serpents are mentioned? Does God have authority over serpents? Like the satanic serpent whose head will be crushed throughout the pages of the Bible. This is a picture of God's authority. Listen, you're you're to go to them and you're to tell them, this is what I'm going to do and if they don't believe, demonstrate by throwing this rod down Become a snake and you'll pull it back up unharmed. God is the one who has authority over the kings of this world and over the very prince of the power of the air of this world, Satan. One early church father says that this staff of God prefigures the cross of Christ. But there's a second sign, isn't there? A leprous hand in verses 6-8. through Look there, verse 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then the text tells us that he does it again. His hand is completely healed. Some scholars argue that this is a picture of healing and restoration. That just as the people, the Hebrews need to be healed, as it were, restored, as it were, from their slavery. God is the one who will bring healing. Others have made the argument that this is a picture of resurrection, death and resurrection, or resurrection and judgment. A rod and a serpent and a healed hand. But there's a third sign. That's in verse 9. Look there with me. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. This would be the Nile River. What's going to happen to this water? The water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. Now, brothers and sisters, some scholars make the argument, and I agree with them, that this third sign is a picture of possible judgment on Egypt. What happened in the Nile River? What happened in the Nile River? Pharaoh shed the blood, as it were, of the Hebrew boys. Throw all the boys in the river. Now, they drowned. Their blood was not literally shed. But just as Pharaoh shed the firstborn of God, as it were, we will see by the end of this book, God will shed the firstborn of Pharaoh. The water will turn into blood. Pharaoh, you have shed the blood of my people. I am the sovereign over the judgment for the blood that you have shed. But these signs are first to be given to whom? God's people. Moses says in verse 1, what if they don't believe? God gives him three signs. And these signs are intended to encourage belief among God's people. That's why God is giving them to Moses. Now I want you to think not just for a moment about Exodus, but let's think about the whole Bible. And this is important for all of us as we read our Bibles. Because this is not the only time in the scripture where God gives miraculous signs so that people will believe his word. And, and this is something that's debated and often misunderstood in our day. But just walk through the Bible with me for a moment. Here in Exodus chapter 4, God gives through Moses a word and then he gives him signs. And as we see at the very end of the chapter, verse 31, the people believed. This was the case with the prophets as well. Turn over to First Kings for just a moment. 1 Kings, just a couple of books to your right, 1 Kings chapter 17. Now we've moved forward in history quite a bit, and we're with the prophet Elijah. Remember, boys and girls, a prophet is someone who speaks the words of God. The prophet is the mouthpiece as it were of God. 1 Kings 17:24. You remember the story of Elijah and the widow Verse 23, And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. You see, we're meant to read our Bibles in the sections that we're in, but also to consider what the whole Bible has to do. Moses given words of God and signs to show that those words are true and people believe. Elijah, the prophet of God, given words of God and signs and people believe. Can we think of anyone else who gave the very word of God accompanied with signs? Well, yes, the great prophet of God, the greatest prophet of God, God himself, Jesus, our Savior. Turn all the way over to John. John's Gospel, John chapter 2, verse 11. Boys and girls, Jesus comes on the scene. He performs signs. The first sign is water turned into wine at a wedding. John chapter 2, verse 11. Following this miracle, the text says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Now, if you were to turn all the way over to Acts chapter 2, verse 43, what would you see the apostles doing early in the work of the church? Signs. There's a great misunderstanding in our world today. In Christianity, many people think that signs are things that will continue on and on and on, just to kind of show the glory of God. God must really be at work in this amphitheater, in this football stadium, in this local church, if there are miracles happening. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that if you read the Bible closely, what do you see? God gives his word, and at every stage of revelation from Genesis all the way to the very end, he uses signs to demonstrate that his word is true. His word has come. The apostles have laid the foundation for the church. That word has been accompanied by signs. And now we are to believe. You want to look for a miracle in your day? Watch as souls are saved by the preaching of the word of Jesus Christ. A word that originally came with signs. You see, this is the beginning in Exodus chapter 4. Miraculous signs throughout Scripture are given to validate that the Word is the Word of the living God. That's why in the Old Testament there were grave penalties for a person who claimed to be a prophet of God whose Word did not come to pass. What does God do in Exodus chapter 4? He gives, as it were, words to unbelief. Moses, you're struggling to believe That they'll believe. Watch this. But, oh covenant people of God, this is my word. Here are the signs. God gives words to unbelief. But secondly, he gives reminders in doubt. You ever doubt the word of God? You ever doubt your standing with God? Here in our text, the second thing that we see is that God gives reminders in the midst of doubt. Now, what has God just done, boys and girls? He's given Moses a task, and he showed him three different miraculous signs. So what does Moses say? Moses is very honest with God. His heart is laid bare through his mouth. What does he say? Well, look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. Meaning, I don't speak very well. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Lord, you, are you sure you have the right man? <laughs> Because my mouth doesn't work very well. I don't speak very well. We, we could guess, did, did, did he have a, an issue with actually forming words? Did, did he have an issue with putting sentences together? What was the issue? We don't know, but he says, I'm not eloquent. So in verse 11, we read this. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? The Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth. Now, this is the second time in just four chapters where Moses has been told that. I will be with you, Moses. There's a lesson for us. There's a reminder in doubt here, beloved, and that is the power is in the word, not the messenger. The power is in the word, not the messenger. How many of you are afraid to evangelize because you think you're not eloquent? If I get into the gospel on an airplane and I don't know what to say, what are they going to think? Wrestling with whether you should tell a neighbor or a coworker about the things of God or, or begin to pick up the Bible and lead your family in family worship. I might stumble my way through this. One of the greatest people in the Bible outside the Lord Christ had difficulty speaking. And God told him, I will be with your mouth. Because the power is in the word, it's not in the messenger. And for this we praise the living God. Cyprian, the ancient church father, said this, commenting on this passage quote, It is not difficult for God to open the mouth of a man devoted to him and to inspire constancy and confidence in speaking in one who confesses him, who in the book of Numbers made even a female ass speak against Balaam the prophet. Therefore, let no one consider in persecutions what danger the devil brings, but rather let him bear in mind what assistance God affords. Let not disturbances of men weaken the mind, but let divine protection strengthen the faith, since each one, according to the Lord's promises and the merits of his faith, receives so much of God's help as he thinks he receives, since there is nothing which the Almighty cannot grant." End quote. God gives Moses reminders in the midst of doubt. Is your lack of eloquence something that you're regularly telling the Lord is the reason why you can't do a task that he's called you to? But we see something else in this reminder of doubt. Look what happens next, verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Moses is not convinced. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. The text says that the Lord is now angry with Moses. And we shouldn't think of this as God having a shifting kind of emotion. That God is sort of sitting up in heaven. And when we do something, it produces a change in God. That's how anger works here among us, finite sinful creatures, isn't it? We go about our days, then something happens outside of us, and it produces a change in us, and we get angry. No, God is not shifting in his emotions, as it were, or his passions. It's a movement of his justice. It's a way of using emotional language to kind of say how we are before God, who simply is Remember that in Exodus 3.12, God had already told Moses once, I will be with you. Moses, you're doubting the God who has told you that he will be with you. So God gives Moses a further assurance. Look, you and your brother are going to do this together. He is going to be, as it were, verse 16, a mouth to the people. And you're going to be as God to him. What does that mean? Well, it means... The one who brings the word of God brings the very word of God. I'm going to give you my words, Moses, and you are going to be to Aaron like God. You're going to give him God's word and he's going to proclaim it. We ought to remember that when we think about the preaching of the word of Christ down through the ages. What is it that God is doing in Exodus chapter 4? Well, he's giving words to unbelief and he's giving reminders in doubt. Where might there be doubt in your soul this day? Lord, I know you've called me to do this, that, or the other, but I'm not eloquent. Or perhaps in your case, it's, Lord, I know that you've said that you will complete a good work, which you've begun in me, Philippians 1.6, but I'm not sure because of my own limitations. How many of the very promises of God do you hold in question because of your limitations? God says He can save a dirty, rotten sinner, but I have a lot of sin. God says that He can bring His gospel through the mouthpiece of people who evangelize, but I'm not eloquent. And on and on it goes. God is with His people. He will accomplish His promises. And when He calls them to something, He will equip them. The God who, as Cyprian says, can speak through a donkey. Certainly, certainly is not limited by all of our frailties. But there's a third thing, and this is one that gets a little more challenging for us to wrap our minds around. A third thing that God does in this text, and that is that he brings correction to disobedience. Correction to disobedience. For this, we continue in verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who have sought your life are dead. You remember, people were seeking his life because he had killed the Egyptian. They're dead. Verse 20, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You see the connection? Verse 24, It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. Perhaps this seems strange. What happens next? Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. That is, God let Moses go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now this section regarding the circumcision of one of Moses' sons, is a section where many scholars will say, what are we to make of this? This seems very confusing. And yet when we zoom out for just a moment, and then we zoom in closely to see what God has called Moses to do, the pieces become rather clear. What sign had God given Moses' people through their father Abraham? To mark out that they were part of this covenant promise? Well, he had given them the sign of circumcision. Every male of the Hebrews was to be circumcised in his flesh. The foreskin of his body to be removed. This was a sign of God's covenant. To bring about the seed of the woman from the Hebrews. To bless the nations. You will be a people in a land. And from you and your land will come... The Messiah that's the covenant promise what was the covenant sign the very place in your body where the seed comes is going to be marked by blood now this is all in the background by the time we get to Exodus and the very leader of God's people is on his way to say God is going to accomplish his promise he's going to take us out of Egypt and put us in the land that he's promised had not circumcised one of his boys. This is a problem. The Lord is, as it were, angry at Moses and seeks to kill him. Now, this may seem strange because just a few verses earlier, God had a plan for Moses. And so we need to read that as sort of an understanding of how Moses is before God. we see that Zipporah, his wife, takes a sharp stone and circumcises her own son. She then takes the remainder of that circumcision, the foreskin, the bloody foreskin, and throws it at the feet of Moses. I don't want to make too much of this, but let me take out the details and just describe to you what I've just said. Blood of the covenant sign covers Moses and God's anger is abated. Does this sound familiar? This is not the covenant that we are in, brothers and sisters. Our covenant doesn't exist as a covenant of blood from circumcision. But are we not in a covenant with God that involves the shedding of the blood of the Son of God? Let's look at a couple of things. Circumcision was the covenant sign. For whatever reason, and we can speculate, some speculate it's because Moses was afraid of Zipporah. Others speculate that, you know, there are a variety of other reasons. We don't know why, but Moses hadn't obeyed God's command to circumcise his son. This sign would be a sign required at Passover. Passover. Turn just a couple of chapters to your right, Exodus chapter 12. You know, Moses is about to bring about, humanly speaking, by God's hand, the Passover of God's people. Notice what God prescribes for Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. This is the ordinance of Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. there was something remaining in the obedience of Moses as he made his way back to Egypt. He needed to ensure that the covenant sign, the Abrahamic covenant sign, would be given to his son. Zipporah, seeing what was happening, circumcises the boy. So why then this part of the passage? Well we've already mentioned circumcision would be required to be a part of God's old covenant people it would be required to partake in the Passover meal it required the spilling of blood which would picture something that is to come and Moses of all people the leader of God's people in the old covenant needed to identify with Israel they're circumcised people you and your family need to be circumcised circumcised Zipporah in verse 26 says, You are a husband of blood. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to make too much of this, but it took the blood of that particular covenant and its sign to save his life. If you're a Christian, circumcision or not being circumcised doesn't mean anything anymore. Galatians. But the blood of Christ must be what covers you. There is a shedding of blood that is required for you to have right access to God in covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Listen, friend, you and I are sinners. We've disobeyed God's holy and righteous law. And in our own record, in our own strength, we stand before God almost like Moses did. Ready to be wiped out. God is holy. He's not vengefully angry, sitting there ready to just pounce at any moment. No, He just is just and He will in His justice move against all sin. And you and I have plenty of sin and God will move in His justice against us unless there is a shedding of blood to cover our sins. Christ would ultimately be the shedding of blood for everyone who trusts in Him. And listen, circumcision is picked up in the New Testament. I know some say that it's picked up in baptism, but I would actually beg to differ. I think the New Testament tells us that whereas in the Old Covenant there was a circumcision of the flesh, in the New Covenant there is a circumcision made without hands. A circumcision of our hearts before God which are covered by the blood of Christ. So how do we apply this very challenging passage, bloody stone and a circumcision, and its remains thrown at Moses' feet. Well, a couple of points of application here in this correction to Moses' disobedience, his delay. Blood is required for anyone to be in covenant with God. Are you under the blood of Christ? Are you? But whereas in the Old Covenant, the flesh of all the males was circumcised, in the New Covenant, God circumcises our hearts by His Spirit. And the blood of Christ shed once for all covers us and cleanses us. You know what it's like to have the blood of Christ cleansing your sin? It means that there is no condemnation for you anymore. You know what else it means? It means that Monday morning, after you've had a wonderful Lord's Day with Christ's people and you realize a sin in your life and your conscience is pricked, do you know the only thing that can cleanse your conscience? The blood of the Lamb. Christ bled and died so that for every sin throughout my life that I repent of, there is a sure foundation that God and His justice is completely satisfied and that my conscience can be clear because blood has been shed. Not the blood of My Son in circumcision, but the blood of His Son at the cross. Another application throughout the Bible, we should actually have concern for covenant signs. Now we're in the New Covenant. What are the covenant signs that God has given us in this new covenant of grace? Well, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those signs... Don't save us as if a work done outside of us by other human beings is the basis of our salvation. But they are pictures. They're means of grace. They're given to us to remind us that we're in covenant with God. So if you're a believer and you're trusting in Christ and you haven't been baptized, you're in disobedience. There's a delay there that needs to be corrected. You also should have a high regard for the other covenant sign, the Lord's Supper. The Scripture tells us to take that seriously, to prepare for it. Brothers and sisters, every Lord's Day, we come to the table. We aren't to think that the living God is waiting for us to circumcise our child. But we are to think, He's given me covenant signs. Moses wasn't the only one to get a covenant sign. He's given me covenant signs, two of them. Do I take them seriously? And lastly, we must not neglect our duty towards our children. Now, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters will take a passage like this and say, See how important it is to give your sign to your child, baptize them. We would say, Well, there's a little bit of a different expression of how covenants work, but the larger principle stands. Moses was lacking in a duty towards one of his children. Let us not think that we are under any less obligation within the covenant that we are in to ensure that our children hear the word of Christ in our homes. In one sense, you could argue that while God's covenant demands in the Old Testament needed to be on the flesh of sons, Our covenant requirements in the New Covenant are that God's very words are regularly on our lips and our homes. So what does God do in this passage of Scripture? Well, He gives words to unbelief, He gives reminders in doubt, and He gives correction to disobedience. Moses, you've delayed. And I can't have you leading my people, a circumcised people, without correcting this i want to look at the final paragraph as we close but before we do there might have been a phrase or two in this text that caused you to think to yourself what does that mean notice in verse 21 the lord says to moses i'm going to send you to pharaoh but at the end of verse 21 look what he says but i will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go now most of you know what's going to happen over these next few chapters there's going to be a back and forth isn't there All kinds of plagues. Moses is going to speak the word of God through Aaron. Pharaoh is going to sometimes just flat out say no. Sometimes he's going to say, let me think about it, then no. Then he says, finally go, and then he changes his mind again. Pharaoh is a hard-hearted man. But what does that mean? God is going to harden his heart. Well, all throughout this book, as we'll see, God speaks to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But it will also say in various places that Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Let me just give you two different explanations from two brothers over the last 2,000 years. Here's Augustine writing in the 400s on this passage. It was that both God and Pharaoh caused this hardening of the heart. God by his just judgments, Pharaoh by his free will. Fast forward about 1,200 years to Matthew Poole, the Puritan. He says that God hardens, quote, either by denying to them or withdrawing from them that grace which alone can make men soft and flexible and pliable to the divine will. As the sun hardens the clay by drawing out of it that moisture which made it soft or by exposing them to those temptations of the world or the devil which meeting with a corrupt heart are apt to harden it. You might be reading this and perhaps new in your faith, you might be thinking, what does this mean? God hardening hearts. I think these two brothers help us. You see, our hearts are already hard. The scripture says they're like stones. That's how hard they are. And for some, like Pharaoh, God in his judgment will leave them in a place of hard-heartedness. And For others, He will cause the rain of His mercy to flow and soften our hearts so that we hear the words of Christ and we respond in faith, repentance. Listen, friend, if you don't have a hard heart, it's because the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort, has made it to be that you, by divine aid, have been given a soft heart, a new heart. For this, you ought to praise the living God. Let me just suggest to you that the Bible says that in some sense, you and I are no better nor any different than Pharaoh, but by the mercy of God. Well, finally, we see one other thing that God does in this text, and with this we'll close. That is that God is faithful to his promises. Look at the last few verses. Verse 27, and then the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God. It's Mount Sinai, by the way. It's the place of the burning bush, by the way. And kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. What do you think happened? what do you think happened? So the people believed. Do I not control your mouth, Moses? Your lack of eloquence is nothing for me. This is what I want you to do. So, verse 31, the people believed. And when they had heard the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. Imagine that. A people hearing that God is bent towards them in mercy towards their affliction and they fall on their face believing in Him and worshiping. This is us. This is what has just happened already this morning. We are the new covenant people who have a God who has seen our affliction being weighed down and burdened by sin, dead in our sins. And He's come through His messengers and given us a word We have believed him, and now we fall down on our faces and we worship him with all our hearts. God is faithful to his promises. In this instance, faithful to Moses. Hey, this is what's going to happen, Moses. He's faithful. But in another sense, he's faithful to the Hebrew people as a whole. Didn't he tell Abraham? Didn't he tell Isaac? Didn't he tell Jacob? Didn't Joseph somehow get the word? Didn't the Hebrew midwives get the word? Didn't Moses' mother and sister get the word? The Hebrews have gotten the word down through the ages. God is going to bring us out of this land. He's going to be faithful to us. Now, it's coming to pass. There's going to be a great day when without the hindrance of human frailty anymore, without the hindrance of disease And certainly without the hindrance of sin. You, Christian. Will stand on the mountain of God. And you will face to face see. That every last word that God said to you. In your affliction. Was absolutely true. And you. You will fall down on your face and worship the God for all of eternity who through His Word caused you to believe. Let's pray. Living God, you have done great things in this chapter. We pray that the weight of these great things would influence our hearts as we see that even this chapter just is the beginning of what you would do in this holy word, of getting your people to Christ. So we pray now that we, your blood-covered people, would take you at your word, believing your promises, that in whatever ways we need to, we might receive your word in unbelief, that we might receive your assurance in moments of doubt, your correction in our disobedience, and that we might see through your spirit how you're faithful to your promises. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name.